Well, that's exactly what he's been talking about, is spiritual warfare. He's saying to the Ephesian believers, you know all that I've said about marriage and parenting and communication and anger in the church and so on? It's all one big spiritual war. Paul is reminding you that at street level, practically every day, daily Christianity is a fight. There is really is a moral right and wrong. There really is an enemy. There really is seductive and deceptive temptation. You really are spiritually vulnerable. But he says more, so much more. He reminds us that by grace, we have been properly armed for this battle. The question is, is will you, will I, will we use the implements of battle that the cross of Jesus Christ has provided for us? So what are those implements of battle? What are the weapons of our warfare? I want to give us three of them this morning. Here's the first one. The first weapon of our spiritual warfare is that Jesus has given us knowledge of the battle. I'm an 80s kid. We grew up with G.I. Joe. And all of you out there who are 80s kids, you know that in G.I. Joe, knowing is half the battle. Right? And we, and that, that's it. Knowing really is half the battle. And so Paul gives us a knowledge of spiritual warfare in this passage to equip us with reality, the way things really are and what's going on in the world so that we can maintain and have the proper perspective that we need on our lives. Brian Borgman describes the nature of this battle when he says the following, quote, when we come to faith in Christ, we become liberated prisoners of war. However, the battle's not over. We just change sides. Indeed, a new battle begins within us, the battle between the flesh and the spirit. Our former master, Satan, the enemy of our souls, tries to apply and enforce bogus fugitive slave laws on us. He capitalizes on the battle within to make us wonder if we really do not belong back in his kingdom. He tempts us to use the members of our bodies as weapons of unrighteousness, denying the new realm in which we live, the realm of the Spirit. End quote. That's the nature of our battle, brothers and sisters. So the first thing we need to know about this battle is that we cannot and we must not fight it alone. Notice what Paul says in verse 10. Finally, be strong. Just be strong. Try harder. No, be strong in the Lord. And in your strength, no, in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God. See, for this battle, we don't have the resources in and of ourselves to fight it. We have to be equipped by God himself, his strength, his might, his armor. So our first step in successfully waging spiritual warfare is recognizing our weakness, our vulnerability and our desperate need for the Lord's strength. See, self-sufficiency, brothers and sisters, is a killer in spiritual warfare. It's one of the reasons that many of us are being trapped by the enemy's devices right now, because we're trying to escape his clutches with our own self-sufficiency. So dependence on Christ is absolutely crucial. We cannot fight this battle by ourselves. Second thing that we need to know about this battle is that it's spiritual in nature not physical. Notice again what Paul says in the middle of verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that 
you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle, verse 12, against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That is a spiritual battle, not a physical battle. See, we have to avoid two extremes when we think about spiritual warfare. Perhaps some of us in this room are thinking, you know, they think there's a devil behind every rock. And the devil has you purposely targeted, and he's just attacking you. Well, I want to let you know the devil's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at once. He's not God. He does have an army of emissaries that work with him, but we must avoid the extreme of thinking that everything is spiritual. Everything that's going on in the world is spiritual. There's no physical issues, no emotional issues, nothing like that. But neither must we go to the other extreme of thinking that there is no such thing as spiritual warfare. It's all chemical and biological and circumstantial in people's lives, cultural. So we have to avoid both of those extremes. And if I would say, as Western Christians, if there's one extreme to which we must certainly avoid, it's to ignore it. See, we don't see the kind of crazy stuff we hear about in third world countries if, you, if you've been there. or been, I mean, you don't see the kind of stuff I saw in India when I was there a number of years ago with Pastor Jonathan. Oh, you know, see that kind of stuff. So the temptation would be to, well, think it doesn't exist. I mean, we think if a person's not turning green, spinning their head and vomiting, that there's no spiritual warfare going on. Because that's what we, we think of the exorcist or something. And that's just ridiculous. Satan, that's not Satan's MO. Satan's MO is to masquerade himself as an angel of light. He wants to create a positive self-image. Clinton Arnold says, there is a distinct danger for Western Christians to discount or minimize the reality of our spiritual opponents. To do so makes us more vulnerable to their attacks by making us less vigilant, less reliant on prayer, less dependent on God, and less dependent on spiritually gifted fellow believers. Quote. Now I want to say a word to those of you who don't profess to be a Christian here this morning. You're not saying that you follow Christ. You're not walking with Jesus presently. I want to say that if that you are in a dangerous spiritual condition, especially if you don't see your need for Christ. And especially if things are just going super and things are awesome and, you know, like future looks bright, I got to wear shades. That's an old lady's reference too. So, you, you mean, you're just looking out in the future and everything looks good and you feel good, your health is good, you're strong, you're vibrant. I mean, the whole world's ahead of me. I just don't walk with Jesus. You're in the clutches of Satan. And he would love to keep you healthy, wealthy, prosperous, just as long as you don't turn to Christ. And so I want you to wake up this morning. That there, there, there's an, a real enemy of both a Christian soul and a non-Christian soul, of an unbeliever soul and a believer soul, and he is after us. We have an enemy. Paul calls him the devil here in verse 11. That's a Greek word. In the Greek, that literally means a slanderer. He opposes us. He accuses us. Satan in Hebrew means adversary. He is against us. So we learn several things about him in this text. First of all, we learn that he's strategic, don't we? It says that you may be able to withstand against the schemes of the devil. See, he's strategic. What are some of his schemes? He doesn't like me talking about this. What are some of his schemes? I'm going to expose him. Well, he wants to get us in, here's just six of them, all right? He wants us to mess up in sin. He wants us to give up the fight. 
He wants us to get puffed up with pride. He wants us to muck up the gospel. He wants us to split up our relationships. And he wants us to shut up rather than speak the truth, especially the truth of the gospel. So mess up, give up, get puffed up, muck up, split up, or shut up. That's his M.O. So then you have to ask your questions. Okay, so if, how do I know if the enemy's working in my life? So you'd think, okay, so he wants me to mess up in sin, all right? So do I have any reoccurrent sin patterns in my life that I'm not thoroughly repenting of? Am I hiding anything? He loves to push us into hiding. That's what he did with our first parents. Push them into hiding. Get your fig leaves out. Don't tell anybody. He wants us to give up the fight. So have you let discouragement become an idol in your life? I'm just, I just, no matter what I do, it's just always, I just always fail. I'm no good. He wants us to get puffed up with pride. So the question, do I have a high view of myself as better than others? Am I almost always right? He wants us to muck up the gospel. Am I compromising? Am I caving into the spirit of the age on the gospel and important Christian truths? When my friends say things that contradict the gospel, am I intended to go along with them? Split up relationships. You have broken relationships and you have not done everything you could do to make peace with those things or, or try to reconcile those relationships? Shut up rather than tell the gospel. When's the last time you shared the gospel with anybody? Personally. So we have an in, in, enemy. We have an adversary. We have someone who is getting us with schemes. And if we find ourselves in any of those, we need to wake up and be aware that he is, a, he is alive and active. And he's not alone right? Verse 12, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, plural, against the authorities, plural, against the cosmic powers, plural, against the spiritual forces, plural. So this is an whole army of evil that is against us, Satan and all of his demons set against the church and God's people to mess them up in sin, to cause them to give up, to cause them to get puffed up, to muck up the gospel, to split up relationships or to shut up rather than tell the gospel. And it says he's active. So our response is wrestling. Verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So what, is this, what does this wrestling look like in our lives? Well, for the sake of illustration, okay, picture the sin line, okay? There's a sin line in front of you, and it marks where you cross from obedience into disobedience. So just imagine with me, here's the sin line. This is the obedient side. If I cross it, now I'm into disobedience, okay? So sin line is right there. Well, what Satan wants you to do is on this side of the line, on the obedient side of the line, he's trying to entice you to cross the line. He's trying to get you out of this area into the disobedient area, and that's, that's typically what we think, you know, Satan's there. I mean, he's a liar, he's a deceiver, he's an enticer, he's trying, to, he's trying to entice us to move into sin. Go ahead, do it. No one will know about it. Look at what you're missing. Everyone else is doing it, just go ahead. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop once he gets you enticed and crossing from obedience into disobedience. Because once you cross the sin line and you move into disobedience, his, he changes on you. And he becomes the accuser. 
Because he's enticed you over here, and now he's going to accuse you on this side. So see? See? Not a Christian. Not a Christian. God doesn't love you. So let me give you some examples of how this sounds. All right? So enticer, as on this side of the line, in the obedience, when he's trying to entice you, go ahead and sin. God will still love you. God will never love you again. See what you did? This side. Just one more time. You can stop. You'll never be able to stop. You can't overcome this sin. This side, don't worry. God will forgive you. This side, God will not forgive you. You've done it too many times. This side, you deserve this. Don't miss it. You're a loser. It's that deal. It's the enticing, accusing thing. That is his M.O. It's crystal clear throughout Scripture. It's the way he works. He dangles the lure in front of us. We take the bait, and then in a demonic twist, he turns and beats us up. His battle strategy is not to leave fang marks on the flesh. His battle strategy is to put lies in the heart. But here's the good news. This is going to lead us into our second point. Here's the good news. He is defeated, and he knows it. He knows it. That's why he is so angry and frustrated in his dealings with us. I mean, Ephesians talks about this reality in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 to 22. I don't have time to read it. But also in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, and Romans chapter 16, verse 20, two massively important texts. In Colossians 2, the picture is that Jesus has disarmed him. He's disarmed the principalities and powers by, through his work on the cross. So there is nothing that Christ, or the, the devil can put on us that can make it stick in terms of accusation and condemnation because Christ has borne our condemnation in his body on the tree. Romans 16.20 reminds us that we will soon crush Satan. God will crush Satan under our feet. He knows his time is short. And so, as Scripture says, his wrath is great. So Paul expects us to win. He's defeated. He knows it. He has the death blow dealt to him. Right? D-Day has happened. The rest is just mop-up operation. All right? D-Day was on the cross. That was the initial battle that dealt the death blow to World War II, that changed the course of the war. Well, when Christ died on the cross, D-Day happened for the devil. It changed the nature of the war. It changed the course of the war. He's defeated. He knows it. He's limping. He's, he's backpedaling. He's still got some bullets, and he's firing them, but his gun's jamming. All right? And he knows it, and he's getting frustrated, and so he'll try to hit us with the gun or throw something at us. But he is scrambling for ways to damn us. And so he's after us, but Paul expects us to win. So that's the first way we're armed. We get a knowledge of the battle. We we get an understanding of his schemes so we don't fall prey to those things. Here's a second implement of war that Jesus has given us. Number two, he's given us armor for the battle. So he's not only given us knowledge of the battle but he's given us armor for the battle. And that armor starts being listed in verses 13 and takes us through verse 17. But I first of all want you to notice the purpose of this armor. 
The purpose of this armor is to help us stand against the schemes of the devil. You notice that verse 11, that you may be able to stand. He says this again in verse 13, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So three times in the, in the, in the, in the span of three verses, Paul tells us, stand, withstand, stand. So do you think he has an optimistic view of the power of our spiritual armor that we've been given, and Satan's defeat. Yes, he anticipates that if we wear the armor as we're supposed to wear the armor, as we lean into it, as we rely upon it, as we put it on, then the devil will be resisted and we will win the fight. Brian Borgman again says, quote, When the devil assaults our soul, attacks our mind, attempts to bend our will, exploit our flesh, and destroy our faith, our goal is not to give one inch Mentally, morally, or spiritually, our goal is to resist his offers, stand against his overtures, renounce his appeals, and repudiate his accusations, end quote. And Borgman's just speaking what the Bible says. James chapter 4, verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. He doesn't have a lot of patience when people resist him. He doesn't. He's like, especially if we're resisting him with the armor of God. He just, he can't abide to hear truth. So he's gone. 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9. Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, Peter says, firm in your faith. So he can be resisted. He can be stood against. We can withstand his accusations and his enticements. But notice that the way this happens is by God's armor, not ours. This armor is an armor that God himself has provided for us. And it's, like Tim said in his reading, it's not Saul's armor. It actually fits us. Sometimes Paul subtly switch, or su- sorry, sometimes people subtly switch this around, and they say this, this uh, passage is all about our armor. It's like the stuff we have to do, the, the things that we have to do to put on. And that's not Paul's picture at all. It's not our faith. It's not our righteousness. It's not our truth. It's all God's. This is God's armor. And we have to remember that the metaphor in the Old Testament that Paul is drawing from for these images all talks about God's armor. It's about his faithfulness. It's about his righteousness, his truthfulness, his salvation. Just listen to a couple of texts. These are the Old Testament texts that Paul is drawing from to pick up on this idea of the armor of God. Psalm 91.4, He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield. Not our faithfulness. His faithfulness will be our shield. The shield of faith is God's faithfulness. Psalm 143.1, O Lord, hear my prayer. Listen to my cry for mercy. In your faithfulness and righteousness come to my relief. That's a breastplate of righteousness. Isaiah 11.5, righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. That's speaking of the Messiah. That's Jesus. Isaiah 59.17, he put on righteousness as his breastplate. Again, referring to the Messiah. The helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. You You see what we're talking about here? We're talking about something that God has provided for us that we rest in, that we rely upon to shield us from the attacks of Satan. 
What he's saying is that Christians, we have to appropriate what we already have. We have to count those things that God says about us to be true for us. We got to take them into the center of our lives and, and, and just, just force them into our hearts. It's what Paul says in Romans chapter 13, verse 14. Put on, the, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. So the idea here is that this armor is God's armor. So let's walk through it very briefly and quickly, I hope, piece by piece. Here we go. Belt of truth is where he starts. It says in verse 13, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. We need it all. Okay, it won't do piecemeal. We can't have shoes and no breastplate. We can't have a helmet, no belt. We need a whole thing. He says, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, verse 14, having fastened on the belt of truth. The belt is central to our body. It holds up the rest of the armor. You don't have a belt, it's all falling off. The breastplate will be saggy and you got to keep the belt. That's where all the tools are hung for war. So it's central to our body. It's central to our lives. The truth of God. What God says in this book, we have to believe and orient our lives around. That's the belt of truth. Breastplate of righteousness, he says, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. This piece is designed to protect our hearts, our vital organs. Swords going through here kill us. And so this breastplate is a Breastplate of righteousness. And I think primarily what's in view here is the breastplate of Christ's righteousness for us. It's the fact that Christ has provided everything we need. So when we're enticed, we don't have to look elsewhere. And when we're accused, we don't have to look elsewhere. Right? So the breastplate of righteousness reminds us that on this side of the sin line, when he's enticing us and trying to get us to cross into disobedience, we don't have to do that. God is right. But when we cross over and he begins to accuse us, we say, wait, you've forgotten. This whole thing isn't about me and my righteousness. It's about Christ's righteousness for me. I mean, this is, there's no better place probably where this is better illustrated than in Pilgrim's Progress with Christian's battle with Apollyon, who's the picture of the devil. If you haven't read that, read that, it's a several hundred year old book by John Bunyan, good Baptist dude. And he, he, he wrote the second most read Christian book after the Bible, Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read it, you, you might not get to heaven if you don't. <laughs> it will help you in your fight to get there a lot more than if you didn't read it. I'll say that. But here's, here's, here's a scene in which Apollyon is arguing with Christian. Christian's blown it. He knows it. And now he's entering accusing mode. All right? So he's, he's already enticed him. Now he's accusing. Listen, Apollyon says, you have already been, faith, you have already been unfaithful to your serv- in your service to him. And how do you think to receive wages of him? Christian says, wherein, O Apollyon, have I been unfaithful to him? Apollyon says, you did faint at first setting out. When he became a Christian, he struggled and stumbled along. When you were almost choked in the Gulf of Despond, you did attempt wrong ways to be rid of your burden, whereas you should have stayed till your prince had taken it off. 
You did sinfully sleep and lose your choice thing. You were also almost persuaded to go back at the sight of the lions. And when you talk of your journey and of what you have heard and seen, you are inwardly desirous of vainglory in all that you say or do. Christian says, all this is true. And much more that you have left out. But the prince whom I serve and honor is merciful and ready to forgive. But besides, these infirmities possess me in your country. For there I suck them in. And I have groaned under them, been sorry for them, and have obtained pardon of my prince. Then Apollyon broke out in a grievous rage. Because he knows truth when he hears it. How did he answer? He answered with the breastplate of righteousness. He said, dude, you, don't even, you haven't even listed a tenth of my sins. But the prince whom I serve is not keeping a record of my sins. He doesn't hold a record of my sins against me because he held them against Christ. And Christ was punished in my place for my sin. And my trust is in him. He has borne them. He's lived a life I should have lived. Not my life, his life. And his life counts for me. And that breaks him out in a rage. The next piece of armor is gospel footwear, gospel of peace footwear. Verse 15, and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So Paul is saying, let your feet be ready to move with the gospel. Let your feet be ready to move with the gospel because the gospel is the message that Satan hates because it's the message that liberates people from him. He hates it. Because it's the message that gets people out of his clutches. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, The God of this age, talking about Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. But when God who said, let light shine, it, let, 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 let there be light in creation, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that's in the face of Jesus Christ. See, that's the disarming of Satan. He hates that. When, he, when the light he's trying to block, the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he, he just wants people to think Jesus was a normal person, if he existed at all. He's just a spiritual teacher, one of many. He's trying to keep you from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ so that he becomes everything to you. Because when he becomes everything to you, Satan becomes nothing to you. That's how it works. And he doesn't want that to happen. So we must be eager to share the gospel that people might be set free. Fourth piece of armor is the shield of faith. In all circumstances, verse 16, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the fiery darts of the evil one. I love that. Just gone. No effect. Extinguished. As a shield protected a soldier in combat, so faith protects us in every situation from whatever the devil might launch at us. He says, did not God say? You say, no, God didn't say that. This is what Jesus is doing in Matthew 4 when he's resisting the devil. He's just got the shield of faith on and he's just just putting them out. He's saying, this is what God has said. This is what is true. Not what I feel, not what you're saying is true, but what God says is true. And so 
it works practically like this. When the devil reminds us of our guilt after we have confessed our sin, we come back and say, whoa, 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 whoa. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Be gone. That's what God has said. If I confess my sins, he's not only faithful to do it, he's just to do it. God has made a way where he can righteously forgive sin and still be God. And that's through the life and death of Christ. So when the devil seeks to condemn us, we respond with Romans 8.33. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus who died more than that was raised to life and is seated at the right hand of God. We, we bring that word back to him. Or when he tempts us to sin, we remind him, 2 Corinthians 5.17, whoever's in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. I'm a new person. I'm not who I once was. I mean, we just sang it this morning, didn't we? When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Martin Luther said, So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. Yep. He said yes, but... Yes, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? You act like that's the last word. For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. So that's the shield of faith. What about the helmet of salvation? That's the next piece. Verse 17, take the helmet of salvation. As a helmet protected our soldier's head, a soldier's head so the helmet of salvation is intended to protect our minds from Satan's attacks. We wear the helmet of salvation in order that Satan can't get to our heads. The mind, the mind is the battlefield for spiritual warfare. That's clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11. The Bible understands our salvation in three tenses, past, present, and future. And it seems like in this case, talking about the helmet of salvation, the future tense of our salvation, the hope of being saved and redeemed and glorified is in view here. Because of what 1 Thessalonians 5.8 says. 1 Thessalonians 5.8 tells us to put on a, as a helmet the hope of salvation. So it's a, future, it's a future idea that we will be saved, that our fight is not in vain, that our labor in the Lord is not in vain, that it's worth, it's worth persevering and not giving up and not losing heart so that we can make it to the end because we will be saved. John MacArthur says the helmet of salvation is that great hope of final salvation that gives us confidence and assurance that our present struggle with Satan will not last forever. We will be victorious in the end. We know the battle is won for this life, and even a long earthly life is no more than a split second compared to eternity with our Lord in heaven. We are not in a race we can lose. That's the helmet of salvation. I'm not going to lose. God's going to keep me. I'm going to be saved. As William Gurnall says, take this helmet so as to never lay it down until God takes off this helmet to put a crown in its place. So that's the helmet of salvation. What about the sword of the Spirit? 
You notice that in verse 17, the sword of the Spirit. It's helpfully when Paul tells us exactly what the sword of the Spirit is. It's the Word of God. And this underscores the importance of the Word and Spirit as a means of our victory in a fight against spiritual evil. It was the Word and Spirit that enabled Jesus to overcome in his fight with the devil. So in order to fight this battle, we have to put on the whole armor of God. You see, there's a lot of overlap here. I don't think, I don't think so, sometimes we can go to an extreme and think that every single one of these little pieces of armor is representing something fundamentally different. I don't think that's the case. I think he's trying to paint a picture, a larger picture of all that God has provided us in Christ that we can rely on in the face of the devil's attacks. So in other words, when, we, when he, he kind of summarizes it with the word of God, It's all that God has said, all that God has spoken, especially concerning us. It's the gospel story. And we have to believe it to be true. We have to reorient our lives around this story. You say, Pastor Mark, I'm a Christian. Of course I believe it to be true. Yes, on one level you do, and on another level you don't. (laughs) And neither do I. The Christian life is a progressive long haul in which God is continually beating the gospel into you. We don't believe it the way we need to believe it. Otherwise, we wouldn't sin. So it's, it's this whole gospel story that we have to reorient our life around. It's what Sam told us. In his, and it, that, that, that's part of it, right? Like when he opens up this service and he starts talking about inviting people that can't pay you back. And we start resisting that. You know what that part of resisting? That's the ungospeled part of us. There's, there's remaining within us ungospeled areas that we resist because we think it means loss. And that's what Jesus comes around and says, it's gain. Don't you understand? It's not loss. See, Anytime we resist change, and I'm talking about on a church level, I'm not talking about, and, I'm, and on an individual level, we resist change because we, re, we hate loss. Anybody who comes into your life and says, hey man, got a million dollars for you, it's going to change your life, you want it? Woohoo! Yes, I want it. Your life just changed. <laughs> you love change. It's changed for the better. See, so what we have to see is how this is going to be gain. And we have to be satisfied with God's timing for the distribution of the gain, which is always the best timing. So that's what I'm talking about when we have to reorient our lives to this gospel story. This is different from saying, here are my weapons, let me pick them up. My faith, my righteousness, my Bible, and then ride off like the lone knight into the battle. Rather, it's a call to center yourself around who God is and what God is doing. It is believing these different aspects of the gospel story, that God is righteous, that he's faithful, that he's true. That is how you battle these evil forces standing against you. That's what it means to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. It's by appropriating this gospel story into your life. You and I are now part of that story. And your individual story fits into that larger, grander plan that extends before and beyond our 70-odd years on this planet. And so we have to reorient our minds to it continually. So that's the armor of God. So we've seen, first of all, he's given us knowledge of the battle. Second of all, he's given us armor for the battle. And thirdly and quickly, help in the battle. And I love this. So practical. 
Because it's one thing to talk about the knowledge of it and understand the battle. It's another thing to be equipped with the armor we need. And it's another thing just to know we got help. And there's two things that he's given us in this passage for help in this battle. Prayer and people. Prayer and people. Prayer first. Verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. That in keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. Do you not think he thinks prayer is really central to this whole spiritual battle? Of course. He knows prayer is indispensable to effectively engaging and winning this battle. So if you're struggling in your spiritual life, look at your prayer life. Are you praying? And more so, are you enlisting the support of others to pray with you and for you? Because that's what Paul does right here. Notice what he says in verse 19. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. I love Paul's humility as a church leader here. He comes up and he says, look, if you think just because I've written this letter that I got it all together, you're fooled. I'm scared. I'm nervous. I'm scared of what people might say if I preach the gospel to them. I'm scared I might end up here and my execution might be near. I'm scared. I, I know they've been threatening me and they've told me, if we hear you talking again like this, it's the end for you. And Paul's sitting in prison, writing this letter. He says he's an ambassador in chains, literally sitting there. And he's saying, please pray for me that I will be given boldness to speak the gospel, which is how I ought to speak it boldly but I don't, in and of myself, have the strength to speak it boldly. And so he just asks, please pray for me. Pray for me that I'll speak it boldly. And it's that sort of transparency that I love. And it's that sort of transparency that breeds spiritual warriors and victors in spiritual battle. Because they're open and honest and transparent about where they're struggling. See, Satan loses a foothold in our lives when we open up our struggles to others. Are you opening up your struggles to others? Are you talking to people about what you're having problems with? Where you're struggling? Where you're doubting God? Where you're tempted? Do people know you at the level of temptation? That's how you know you're being transparent. And so it's prayer first and then it's people second. So he's given us help this vertical communion with God that we can call upon him for help at all times for anything we need. As Piper said, it's like a wartime walkie-talkie that we have between heaven and, and, and us. But then there's this horizontal thing too, horizontal community, people. Look at what he goes on to say. He gives these final greetings in verses 21 and 22, and this is precious. This isn't tangential to spiritual warfare. It's essential to it. Look, so that you may also know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. This is critical to spiritual warfare. Do people know who you are and how you're doing? You say, people know who I am. But do they know how you're doing beyond the fine that we say we are? So if they know you, says, he says, I write this to you that you might know how I am and what I am doing. 
People need to know who you are. This church needs to know who you are. Your community group needs to know who you are and what you're doing. What are you doing? How did you spend Monday through Saturday? Tell me. Unpack the schedule. It's one thing to know who we are. It's another thing to know what we're doing. And Paul says, I want you to know exactly what I'm doing. And he says, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. Everything. Anything you want to know. I'm I'm an open book. 22, I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your heart. See, that's, that's what it is. That's the horizontal community. It's not this fear. Oh, if I open up to them, they're going to identify me and they're going to say that I'm a bad Christian. No, they're going to say, that sounds a lot like me, brother. Sounds a lot like me, sister. Let me encourage your heart. So as we do that worship team, you all can come on, come on up and make your way forward. I'm going to close in prayer in just a moment. So, brothers and sisters, however God has spoken to you in this sermon, maybe you're, maybe you're someone who's there and you're saying, I'm not even engaged in the spiritual battle. I'm a victim. I'm getting whipped right now. And it's because I'm not a Christian. It's because I don't have the strength of the Lord. It's because he's not my Lord. He's not my Savior. I invite you to call upon him right now in your seat. Pray to him. Ask him to save you and deliver you from the power of Satan. If you're a struggling believer here and you're, you're saying, I'm messing up. I don't know what I'm going to do. I, I, do you have people praying for you? Do you? Are you transparent with your life? Are you opening your life up? Are you inviting them in to speak? I encourage you to do that. However God speaks to you, let's pray together and then we'll respond in song. Let's stand. Father, we thank you so much for this time together and for the opportunity that we've had to sit before your word and be instructed and helped and equipped for spiritual warfare. Move us and help us. Change us where we need to be changed. Make us open and vulnerable and honest before you and before others. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Sing, O church, arise. Verses 3 and 4.
But let me leave us with this benediction. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Have a great day and happy Thanksgiving.